Welcome to The Beat, a podcast series from the Cops Office at the Department of Justice, featuring interviews with experts from a varied field of disciplines. The Beat provides law enforcement with the latest developments and trending topics in community policing. Hello and welcome to The Beat. I'm your host, Jennifer Donilon. Today's episode is virtual and we have a very special guest with us. We have Chief Fausto Pichardo. He is Chief of Patrol Services for the New York City Police Department and we are so excited to have him with us. Chief Pichardo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jennifer. It's great to have you on this call. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I'm going to tell folks some information that they probably already know, but in case they don't, I want to make sure they know this. The NYPD is one of the oldest police departments in the United States and is the largest police force in the nation. The men and women of the NYPD serve a population of 8.3 million residents that are dispersed over 302.6 square miles, making New York the most densely populated city in the country. However, NYPD is not unique in that it, like police departments throughout the United States, is having to conduct operations in the face of the coronavirus. Today, we are speaking with Chief Picardo, and we will be discussing the impact of the virus on NYPD operations, and I know that it was significant. There's going to be so many lessons to be learned here, so I'm really excited about this conversation. So again, thank you for joining us. Before we get started, I always like to ask all of our guests the same question, because I think the answers are so fascinating, and they vary, right? No two people follow the same path. But what what attracted you to law enforcement, Chief? Well, Jennifer, I really appreciate your opening remarks, especially the historical perspective. And we are indeed celebrating our 175th anniversary this year. The tremendous, tremendous police force. We're fortunate that we are well-resourced. But but to your point and your question, you know, a, a young kid immigrated from uh, the Dominican Republic to the, the United States by way of New York City in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And if you recall uh, anyone who was familiar with New York City in the 80s and early 90s, it was the height of the crack epidemic and the war on drugs, certainly probably throughout the country, but definitely in New York City and specifically in the Lower East Side. And, you know, as a, as a young kid, you know, all you want to do when the summer comes around is go downstairs, maybe play handball, play some catch, play some f- street football. There were no fields back then, right? There was, uh, if you were found a concrete park, you were lucky. And noticing every Saturday morning and Sunday mornings at 8 a.m., about 40, 50, up to 60, 65 people getting online to be served, quote unquote, to buy crack or cocaine at the very footsteps of my building, a five-story walk-up was troubling. So much so that uh, my mother would not allow me nor my brothers and sister to go outside into the street. So for lack of a better word, I was locked up in my own apartment as a young kid the whole summer. And one specific summer in 1995, there were approximately 12 murders on one block. And think about the magnitude of that. One City block, 12 murders. Now, where we are today in New York City, we can go one whole week in the whole city of 8.6 million people, sometimes with as few as zero, and at most maybe sometimes nine murders in a week in the whole city. So looking at that, you know, I kind of took a, a personal vow and said that it wasn't right. I, I appreciate it as, as one would appreciate any parent who's looking out for the well-being of their child and recognize her commitment and her point of view as to why I couldn't go out in the street. And I said, if I ever had an opportunity to do something so that no other child in this city, 
in any neighborhood could live through a summer like I lived through and my brothers lived through for a couple of years, I would do everything that I could. And that's really how I embarked in this journey. And I've had a blessed career. Full disclosure to our listeners, my family is from that area of New York, specifically Lower East Side. And I can remember traveling up there as a child. And grandma, we were right at her hip. Everything was very strict. Uh, you know, the the beautiful thing about the Lower East Side, it has all that flavor and, and all that history. And it's just such a mix of people. And you're right. So many people were held captive in their homes because of what was happening outside of their homes. So good on you for taking all of that and doing something about it. Do you remember your first assignment or one of your first assignments? Do you learn any lessons then that you've taken through your career? You know, it's so interesting you bring that point because before I officially joined the NYPD as a sworn uniform member, I actually, for, for those that are not aware, we have probably the largest volunteer police force in the country, if, if not the world. We have approximately 4,000 auxiliary police officers. And in 1995, I took that first step and became an auxiliary police officer in my local precinct, the 7th Precinct in the Lower East Side. And, you know, these are the folks that, you know, we we don't get paid. They don't get paid for it. They volunteer their time out of their life and their schedules to give back to the community, to have a high visible presence in parks, in the street, engage the community in a way to protect the community. And my first introduction to the NYPD was an auxiliary police officer from 1995 to 1997. In 1997, while I was in college, a program that's called the Police Cadet Corps, it's a program where you actually become a civilian paid member of the police department. And it's it's usually for college students. And again, it's a segue into a career within the police department where you actually work within the precinct. And I did that for a couple of years. And in 1999, I was officially sworn after I completed my BA in criminal justice. I sworn in as a police officer in July of 99. And I was assigned to uh, the Midtown North Precinct in Times Square. The crossroads of the proverbial world. So, so I did five years there. I took a couple of promotional exams and fast forward to where I am today. So I, I've had a pretty, pretty good run. I cannot complain about one single thing. The job has been extremely, extremely good to me. You've certainly been steadfast in what you wanted to do and you stuck with it. I mean, that is amazing. What dedication. Since you were talking numbers about the auxiliary, which is awesome, though that's a tremendous number. People who are doing that for free, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we live in a world that's very much like what what's in it for me. So to see that those type of numbers and people are just volunteering, that's amazing. So let's look at the numbers a little bit. The NYPD has approximately 36,000 sworn officers. 19,000 civilians, 77 precincts that each serve a population of between 70 and 150,000 souls, which is the size of many mid-sized American cities. The NYPD also has 12 transit districts that police the New York City subway, and it's 6 million daily riders. The numbers are just unbelievable. 6 million daily riders and nine service districts that patrol the city's public housing developments. And while all of those functions, I know, don't fall under patrol service bureau, those 77 precincts and the officers that patrol those precincts most certainly are under your guidance and leadership. So how does the NYPD manage to keep everyone focused on the goal in a department that large? Well, you know, it is true that I I have the brunt about 19,000 uniformed and civilian members combined. And I think it it all comes down to to leadership and at its core, the, the mission 
and, and the goal of every human on this police department, whether you're a civilian member, a traffic agent, a school safety agent, a call taker at the 911 call center, or you're a sworn police officer. The fundamental basic of everything that we do in policing is to keep people safe and protect them. So no matter what position you hold in this police department, that's your mission. That's your focus. We all share the same mission, the same focus. And then at the top, we are currently, are, are, are certainly our, our police commissioner, Police Commissioner Dermot Shea, someone who I personally uh, admire and respect and, and the f- rank and file do so as well. Someone who came through the ranks of the police department, commanded several precincts, which is probably the greatest job in the police department. I can certainly attest to that as, as myself being a precinct commander twice in, in my tenure in the police department. So, so I think like anything else, you know, when, when you have a phenomenal leader at the top and you have a group of dedicated employees regardless of what rank, what title, what position they hold that share that same mission. I think it it goes goes off pretty well. I mean, you have we have a couple of districts and and you and you mentioned, you know, transit district and police service areas and and then the precincts, the dichotomy of having a few quote unquote different areas within the police department. It, it really doesn't matter because we all mesh, we all work well. We're all one police department. We wear the same patch there are no boundaries. Whatever we need, we get done collectively as one moving agency. And, you know, it says a lot too, when you have pride in something, you know, I mean, when you have pride in being a member of NYPD, that's just that right there. I mean, that that's half the battle when you have pride in what you do, pride in your department, pride in your community. And I know that you've got more than enough to, to go around there. Let's take a deeper look at what kind of calls you guys are dealing with. Let's first talk about how many, because I'm still <laughs> having to digest these numbers. And for our listeners who are from, you know, smaller areas of the country, there are going to be lessons that, that apply to anybody. Um, no matter the size of your your department, especially when we start getting into the discussions about the coronavirus, which we're getting ready to. But about NYPD, how many calls for service do you respond to on average every day? You know, during this pandemic, it, it's it's dropped about 13 percent. But uh, on an average day right now, we're looking at about fluctuating between 10 and 11,000 per day. Prior to this COVID pandemic, we were probably looking at about 12 or 13,000 per day citywide. You know, you talked about what it was like in the 80s and the 90s. What's it like in 2020 pre-COVID, pre-coronavirus? What was the predominant type of call that you've been running? I mean, it it really runs the gamut. There's a lot of quote unquote in-progress calls. You know, starting in January, we talk about pre-coronavirus. You know, there was an uptick in robberies. So a lot of the calls we were getting were larceny related calls, both with regular forcible robberies of, of property and also vehicle thefts were before coronavirus and now during the pandemic still continue to rise through the roof, so to speak. So it's it's a hybrid of multiple calls of various degrees. Of course, the vehicle collisions, you have our, our aided cases, but from January, the beginning of January this year up until about March 12th, March 13th, really a lot of the calls were related to larceny type of events, whether they were street robberies, whether they were car larcenies or report of car thefts themselves. Now, during this pandemic, uh, a lot of the calls are are really with the burglaries because so many businesses have closed because of the executive orders issued by the governor and the city. I'm sure many folks across the country can relate to that, but we've seen an uptick in uh, those commercial burglaries since they're all closed being broken into. So we have an uptick in those types of calls now. It's interesting too, you know, the, and I, I'm going to get into during COVID and about the type of calls. 
let's make sure we talk about theft from autos because that that was surprising that because you're not the only department that's dealing with an increase in that. It's just you, you'd think people are home, right? And and therefore the cars wouldn't get broken into, but people are still seeing those numbers go up. Let's talk about the beginning of this and and what has been somewhat of a unique story for for you in New York and the world has been watching. Given how active NYPD is and how densely populated the city is, we can only imagine. And again, we watched it. The coronavirus presented an overwhelming concern when it hit. You faced a surge in early April. Up to 20% of NYPD officers were out sick. How do you absorb that level of manpower shortage? You know, I stated at at the beginning of our conversation today that we are well-resourced and we have, dare I say, to use the word luxury that many departments across the country may not have, and that is that we are, in fact, well-resourced. And, and as, as well-resourced as we are, I mean, at its peak around April 9th, there were over 7,000 officers out sick, over 5,600 with COVID-related illnesses and being COVID-positive. And, and that brought us to about that 20% level. Out of those 5,700, uh, 97% of them over 5,600 have returned back to work. They're healthy and strong, and they're out there answering those 911 calls. Six are, are still in the hospital, and we pray for them every day that they continue to get well. But what we did was when we saw the numbers increasing and they were fluctuating, and, and as administrative aspects of the city and, and city government and certainly the police department had to be curtailed and at a time shut down, we took some of those folks that were doing that type of assignment and we reallocated to backfill our patrol strength. So as the numbers were increasing, we were we were kind of looking at, at, at people that maybe were not doing the jobs that had to get done because the city was closed. So for example, the movie and TV unit who work hand in hand with the Department of Film and Television with the city of New York, well, filming stopped. So there we had eight or nine cops that we can take from that unit and put them on patrol in a police car to answer those 911 calls. And we looked across our whole department and everyone stepped up and they stepped up in a big way, went back to basics. They, they took this job, they went out into the street. So so we were able to balance that and, and hold off that 20% number. We didn't go over that. And, and slowly and surely on the downturn, when April 11th, April 12th came around, all the way down to where we stand today, which is roughly around 2.6% of our department is out sick. That's less than a thousand members. Wow. Uh, and we usually hover around 3%. So we're actually doing a little better than what we normally would be at this time. I'm really glad you gave us that perspective because you're right. That's less than what you were doing on a normal day. That's tremendous. That gives me hope looking at New York because, you know, it's a symbol of America. And, and when we see New York get hit like that, it's just... You know, it's it's great to hear good news coming finally. If you had to take us back, though, because, you know, today, as we are conducting this interview, we are in the end of May of 2020. If you had to go back and describe for us what your sort of mental state was when this was like when it was really hitting so many unknowns, moving all those pieces around the board, making sure stuff was covered. You know, there's, there was a real fear factor. People were dying. And how do you maintain their morale? Because no one was immune to this. Can you go back and just take us through, like, when you look back at that and, and how, how were you? How, how were you doing? I think that it's not just it, the NYPD 
I think at the core of every law enforcement officer in every capacity across this great nation of ours, when the bell rings, they step up, they answer that call, and in a big way. And, and you look at this country, and certainly here in New York City, we, we've been through hurricanes, Hurricane Sandy, went through 9-11, as, as many of other parts of the country went through as well, from blackouts and other catastrophic events going on throughout the city. And, and there's something special about, about police officers. There's something really, really special that's rooted deep in them that regardless of what goes on, they are resilient and they put aside whatever they have going on in their world. And listen, our, our cops, I mean, I, I gave you those numbers, over 5,000 that were COVID positive and, and a few thousand more who had other types of illnesses at that time and overlay that with, you know, family members that were dying due to COVID or who were ill and they couldn't see elderly parents. The problems and concerns that the whole world had, certainly a lot of people in New York City shared and across this country have. So the resiliency that our police officers had to step up, to know that they were needed now more than ever. I'd say it's unparalleled really, and, and not because it's New York City, but because of the profession that we have across the country as police officers, that they took this job, they raised their right hand, they swore an oath to protect and serve no matter what. And right now, since March, certainly in New York City, it was the no matter what. And they stepped up in a big way. And I couldn't be more proud of the men and women and not just the police officers. And, and I want to make sure that we be, were mindful of that. It's also our civilian members. And it's not just our traffic enforcement agents and our school safety agent who, who all do a remarkable job. Think about that call taker, that civilian member who's answering the phone in our dispatch center when somebody calls 911 seeking for help. That person stepped up in a big way. They put their own health aside to show up because they're the lifeline. They're the first line of defense for the victim who's crying out for help. So, so the magnitude of this illness that's, that's taken and ripped through this country, the world, certainly our police department, I, I think we could speak on for, for days and years to come. But equally, we can talk about the dedication, the professionalism, the profound, resilient efforts that our members, both uniform and civilian alike, displayed. It's truly, truly remarkable. And Chief, you know, you, you lost 43 NYPD personnel to COVID-19. How do you walk your department and your people through that? They were faithful until death. They paid the ultimate in that effort, as you said, that resiliency. They paid with their lives. You couldn't see the virus. It just, you know, you don't know what you're doing. You think you're doing everything right, and then you get sick. What type of mental health steps did you have to take as a department to make sure that everybody was okay as that was going through? Well, you know, unfortunately, past year and a half, we were well-versed in dealing with tragedies within our own police department. It was widely reported the increase of suicides that we experienced in 2019, losing our uniformed officers of, of all ranks, as high as deputy chief who took their own lives. So, so we rolled out uh, as we saw the suicides increasing rolled out a robust program, a peer support mentoring program where we had volunteers, both uniform and civilian, who signed up and we gave them some some of the best training that we could find to be peer supporters in, in every precinct, in every transit district, in every police service area, in every workplace environment, both in the uniform world and the civilian world, so that if someone needed help, if someone was contemplating suicide, if someone was having financial problems, domestic problems, that they had someone that they work with every day, perhaps, that they can trust, that they can go to. We have over 250 volunteers who are peer support members. We have an app 
on our on our smartphones that every uniformed employee has and and school safety agents have that you can see a plethora of resources on there that if they don't want to go to their coworker or a fellow employee there's an app there with a number of outside resources that have nothing to do with the New York City Police Department we also partnered up through our private partnerships in the Police Foundation a hospital a tremendous, tremendous partnership where they avail themselves to members of this department who were reaching and seeking out for help and said, hey, we have some of our best doctors. You can come to us because we all know sometimes in this profession, there's a little bit of a stigma. People are afraid to step forward and let this police department, any police department sometimes know that, hey, I need help because of fear that they're going to have their guns taken away. They're going to have their shield and badge taken away. They're going to be ostracized by maybe fellow coworkers. So we really revved up those efforts in the end of 2018 and 2019 because of, of what we were dealing with at that time. And I'm happy to say that I know for a fact a lot of our members have taken advantage of that. And that's a good thing. Uh, we need all our people to come forward, uh, to trust us, to let us know we need help. Let us do anything that we can do to help you out. So as we segue between that, obviously, into the world we're in now in this coronavirus world, we, we knew that. We couldn't stop. We knew that the the health and mental well-beingness of of our members was going to be astronomical. I mean, we were averaging civilian deaths through throughout the city. Sometimes there were two hundred a day, and our police officers were responding to those. And, and now they're they're being faced with death every single day. Sometimes death within their own families. As you alluded, we have lost forty three members, six uniformed, thirty one civilian, and six auxiliaries, six of those volunteers that I spoke to at the opening. And uh, those are members of our family. And no death is is easy to deal with, certainly in, in our in our police department family. But I know many of our members, many of them were dealing with deaths and illnesses related to COVID in their own families. So continuing to push out the message, Continue to let people know that we're here for them in every aspect of it, figuring out ways how we can open ourselves and any and all resources that we have to them was was really something instrumental that we needed to do for our members. I really appreciate you talking about the very difficult topic of the suicides, right? Because you're absolutely right. You were in a position where you had a structure. Your department had turned and made a real focus on mental health. So you have that basis as you're moving into something that is going to affect people's mental health in a big way. Seeing people dying, people they know in their family, the fact that you had that structure in place because of the, the horrible and tragic situations with the suicide. I'm glad that you, you talked about that. You know, it's one of those things we've talked about on this show before, the importance of focusing on well-being, mental health. We all know there was a day when you, this was the stuff you talked about. This is the job. And you just you just do it, right? And the fact the law enforcement family across the, the country is really, really taking a hard look at that and trying to change the culture. And I'm really glad that you talked about that because that had to have been a huge benefit for you as you moved into another crisis, which was COVID-19. Is Was there anything that you noticed with the deaths was there any job function relation related to those in terms of like, I understand that they, a large number of them worked in traffic enforcement or school safety, or, or was it just sort of across the board? You know, it, it's, it's really, if you look at, at what's been said in the medical world and specifically with the CDC and couple their guidelines with, with those vulnerable populations and the parameters and, and what they fit, it, it, it really kind of fits 
unfortunately and tragically, our deaths kind of align with with everything that's that the medical professionals are, are saying are most susceptible to this virus. So we continually look at that with, with our own in-house medical professionals to ensure that that population, that vulnerable population who perhaps has maybe a little higher at risk to contract the virus, that we definitely look out for them now more than ever. Let's talk about the Patrol Services Bureau and new demands and challenges. So you did talk about moving people who were in units that were not necessary, they weren't essential functions during the time of COVID-19. So like you said, no one's shooting movies right now. Were there any other demands or challenges that presented themselves that you had to tackle um, beyond the people getting sick? Certainly there were. We still had to deal with traditional crime, right? Just because people were not out as much, if the clubs were closed and some bars may have been closed if they didn't sell any food, yeah, the larcenies and the identity theft and credit card fraud crimes and the larcenies from commercial establishments, specifically clothing stores or all those non-essential businesses, if you will, we'll, we'll see the decrease in, in crime in those categories. But as I alluded to before, as those non-essential businesses, you know, commercial establishments close or burglaries, because unfortunately there were some miscreants out in the world. And, and think about that. Taking advantage of the most vulnerable people in this city at, at a time when the world is hurting, where they close down these businesses and now they have to come back to their business and be, in essence, re-victimized because their establishment was broken into. So you take that and and we still saw an uptick in shootings and, and murders mm-hmm. because our gang members, folks that were let out of the city jail system and the state jail system early because of these COVID-related illnesses and, and things that were going on in the criminal justice world were out there and they were they were out there shooting and, and committing crimes. So we pivot to traditional crime. We, we pivot to the, the shootings and, and the homicides and we're still in that world. We have some pockets all throughout the city where we have some serious, serious gang violence invi- involving really, really bad people. Some that have been let out of jail and involved in some violence, and some that were are on parole and should probably be back in jail, quite frankly, to make sure that the, the good people of this city are safe. That topic of the early release and, and trying to thin out the jails a little bit to stop the spread of COVID-19, that's something law enforcement agencies had to face across the country. And people may tend to want to say, oh, it was fine. I think we have to talk about the reality of what it was and where it worked and where it didn't work and how it worked and how it didn't work. Because the reality of it is we are not at the finish line by any stretch of the imagination. And depending on which expert you listen to, you know, we could be looking at a second wave and a second wave that could potentially be worse than the first. Everybody's battle weary right now. What do you learn from what we've been through? How do you prepare yourself if it happens again? And what are some of the lessons that you think are important for the listeners to hear as they Monday quarterback what they just did and perhaps plan for what could be another wave? I I really want to just circle back to the point about the prison population and and those release of inmates. And so I want to make sure that I'm very clear on something. I, I am not saying that everyone should be locked up and no one should be released. We can all agree to that, I think, especially in our profession. If you look at our police department this year alone, we've made approximately 28,000 less arrests compared to last year. And that's just in the first five months of this year, less than 28,000 people that we put in jail, right? And I would agree that if there's someone 
who has 10 days left on their sentence, that perhaps maybe considering that, then maybe we should release that person. And we look at all the variables tied into it so that they don't get ill behind the correction system, right? So I'm in agreement with one aspect of it. And the problem that, that I certainly have is when we have prolific career criminals who will have a propensity for violence. I mean, there was an individual that was released who was arrested on a number of sexual offense charges. And within the first couple of weeks that he was released, he raped a woman. That person should have never been released. And now hopefully he never gets released, right? So we look at that. Now, to go to your point about lessons learned, I, I will say this. I think that it is critical for anyone. And I think with, with everything, and I, and I think you will really appreciate this portion of what I'm about to say, that it is really the messaging piece. Messaging, messaging, messaging is so critical. And I'll start off with the messaging piece internally with our very own employees. I think we did a, a pretty good job between having a special app, between sending messages, between the police commissioner hosting social media forums so our members can ask them questions, the availability of that, a special banner that comes on when they turn on their department computers. But I, I think we can always do more. I, I think that relaying the information on daily basis and even till now, I'm on daily calls with our police commissioner at the highest levels. And we, we want that to trickle down all the way to the, to the troops, the men and women out in the street doing the job every single day. But I think every aspect, if, if I would say across the board, I think messaging is the most critical piece, both where we are as an agency, what we're seeing, what the plan is, what we're doing. So I think we did a really good job with it, but I think we can always do better. And I think that's what's great about this organization, that no one sits back and say, taps themselves on their shoulder and on their back and say, hey, rah, rah, I did great. We all strive. We did okay, but we all strive to do better. And in this profession, as long as we have individuals, and I'm not speaking about me, I'm talking about the over 55,000 employees that we have, I know they are striving to do better, and that's how we move forward, and that's how, in this profession, we continue to do well and look out for each other and protect the people of this great city. Well, it's called humility, right? I think the people that think they know everything are the ones that set themselves up for failure. I think you have to be open and honest and pliable. I was sitting here nodding my head like a bobblehead. We were going over the messaging piece, especially the internal communication, because that is so key, especially for your morale, just communications, communications, communications. So of course, yes, I'm completely with you. And I do think COVID-19 forced every agency in public safety to take a hard look at their communications. People were going virtual for the first time ever. How many Zoom calls were you on in the last 60 days? <laughs> Too many. <laughs> yep. <laughs> You probably now. Did you buy lighting for yourself? No, but I got a couple of wardrobe and makeup uh, people. That's for okay. Sure. All right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I need all. I need all the help I can get, Jenna. <laughs> and, and they still didn't make me look good. <laughs> I'm telling you, the lights they sell on Amazon—they're phenomenal. Let's talk about actual. You, and you've touched on this a little bit, but I want to. I want to talk about this a little bit more. The types of crime. I know you were talking about the larcenies, et cetera. Domestic violence, I know, was a big one for a lot of folks. People were at home together for an extended period of time, unlike any other. Was that a concern for you? Was that a, was that a number you saw spike up? Did you see that one coming? How did you handle that? Well, that is, is, is probably a, a population that I'm really, really concerned with. I think as a city 
here continues to the process of opening up in the next couple of weeks and hopefully into the summer, I think we're going to see a, a really, really sharp increase in domestic violence calls and domestic violence incidents. And, and simply because of this, if someone is a victim of domestic violence and now they're being told, so to speak, that they have to kind of cohabitate and stay there with that individual because the person has to work from home, but because the person was laid off or fired, because no one can be out in the street I think that that we're lost a, a number of people uh, afraid to come forward because w- what ends up happening is they're going to call 911. We will respond. We will make an arrest. But as we know, because of the virus throughout the city, our district attorneys, courts not in session by and large, especially for some of the most serious and egregious crimes that they're holding special court. But grand juries haven't been convened. You know, so I think we have, unfortunately, a lot of domestic violence survivors who cannot come forward right now because they're in a position at home where if they come forward, they may put themselves really in in harm's way. And and that goes across the board for children as well. And we've been doing outreach. We've been calling the households. We've been sending, you know, just informational flyers. We have crime victims assistance programs in every precinct through the city. We have Safe Horizon advocates in every precinct, and we have lists of, of some of our most vulnerable domestic violence survivors that we want to make sure we keep in contact with them just to check up on them. So I think we're going to see an increase, unfortunately, in, in domestic violence calls and incidents as, as the weather warms up and, and as people come back to work and the city opens up. And we're going to do everything we can to get the help to those domestic violence survivors and their loved ones. It does make you shudder. I'm sure that keeps you up at night. I know it keeps law enforcement up at night across the country. One of the challenges early on was the question of how to enforce these stay-at-home orders without infringing and, and listening to what the, you know, the other side that was complaining about this and, and just trying to make sure that you were, you were walking that line, right? How did you do that? You know, I, I, I wish we as an agency, I would love to take credit for it, but uh, we can't. It, it, it truly, truly has been the remarkable people that make up this city, the over 8.6 million New Yorkers. They have heeded the advice of all the medical professional, certainly our mayor, our police commissioner, the advocates, our elected officials across the board to stay home as much as they can, come in, go through the park, get a workout in and go back home. Obviously with only essential businesses open, come in, do your grocery shopping and head back home. So really the credit is due to every New Yorker that through this remarkable moment in history, they too have stepped up and they too, in a way, have made life easier for us as the law enforcement agency, one of many, but certainly the premier one in terms of responsibility for the city of New York, made our jobs a little easier because the overwhelming, the overwhelming amount of New Yorkers have been extremely, extremely cooperative in everything that they have done and in everything that we have asked them to do at times. So the credit is really due to every New Yorker and it is really, really appreciated. And it's not over yet. We still need everyone to hang in there. We're, we're certainly in a, in a better place from where we were, you know, in early April, but there's work to be done. We, we need to make sure that that's the messaging piece, that we're not out of the woods yet. There's work to be done and we're going to ask for their support as we move forward. Is that the real challenge that you're facing now in May of 2020, just the fatigue 
people wanting to return to normal. Are you facing that at all? Or are people still being pretty strict about everything and understanding? You know, I think we're all fatigued in one way, shape or form. But I think we all accept and acknowledge the tragedies, the the horrible number of deaths in our city that have been attributed to COVID. And I think that because of the awareness that we have in this city of the impact that it's had on our residents and our our family, one city collectively, I think that we have not lost sight of that. I think New Yorkers have not lost sight of that. So even though the weather is turning nicer and it's breaking and and people want to come out, I think they're respectful, uh, respectful uh, of the notion that they need to continue to take all those precautionary measures and washing their hands and wearing a face covering and not gathering in groups and partying and coming out, do their exercise, do their grocery shopping and go back home. So I, I think they're doing it. And and I think if if we all collectively hang in there just a little while longer, I don't know what the new normal is going to look like. But I can tell you that we'll be in a safer place if we keep moving in this direction. Speaking of new normals, so the virus has resulted in tremendous change. We've seen it across society. Entire business sectors have learned how to rethink how they work. We've learned how to work remote. You've learned how to get hair and makeup for your Zoom calls now. (laughs) (laughs) Social distancing is working. You know, that that will likely remain in place for a foreseeable future at least. Have there been any lessons that you think that or changes in policies that you think might actually stick moving forward, even when we go back to life without COVID that you have found as an agency works better as a result of this, that you learned through this? I think anyone who doesn't take a really good and hard look at at themselves and their agency is, is doing really a disservice to their employees themselves, the organization at large, whether it's taking a look at teleworking and, and what we can do in that aspect. And and really, first and foremost, I'd say the landscape of protecting our employees. You know, we have thermal screening at every single facility, including our headquarters here, where every single person and not just police, civilian or uniformed employee Every single person, if someone's walking into a police precinct today to file some sort of report or inquire about something, that person is going to have their temperature read by a police officer before they enter that facility. So looking at the landscape of where we are today as an agency from where we were, I think we will continue to look at ourselves. I think it's a it's a good moment in time to look at what we can do better, more efficient, perhaps in terms of resources and really overall protecting the well-being and the the health of our employees. I can't thank you enough for joining us. I think that you dropped so many gems. I think people are going to walk away from this with, with something. Chief, if someone wanted to reach you, how could they reach you? They can hit me up on Twitter. I'm on social media at NYPD Chief Patrol. They can certainly call at headquarters. My number is listed. Or certainly they can always go through our press office at the Deputy Commissioner of Public Information. They have 24-7 access to me. Chief, thank you so much. We are rooting for you. We are cheering for NYPD. We are cheering for New York. You are in our thoughts. And best of luck as we move forward with this. Thank you. Thank you for having me and and really for, for giving us this forum. And it's important to note that we have learned a lot from our fellow law enforcement agencies across this country. As I, I get on conference calls with them occasionally once a week to hear what they're dealing with. So I just want to be clear that this is not New York City Police Department platform. This is a countrywide joint law enforcement effort 
from every agencies, whether they're a three-person police department or a 55,000-person police department. I want to thank every single law enforcement agency across this country for everything that they do and for all their thoughts and prayers. You have their gratitude. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on The Beat. The Beat is brought to you by the United States Department of Justice's COPS Office. The COPS Office helps to keep our nation's communities safe by giving grants to law enforcement agencies, developing community policing publications, developing partnerships, and solving problems. If you have comments or suggestions, please email our response center at askcopsrc at usdoj.gov or check out our social media on Facebook www.facebook.com backslash DOJ cops on YouTube www.youtube.com backslash C backslash DOJ cops office or on Twitter at cops office. Our website is www.cops.usdoj.gov. The opinions contained herein are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. References to specific agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the authors or the U.S. Department of Justice. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussion of the issues.